Welcome back to Vox Podcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Monica Marvelous. How's it going, Monica? It's going good, Mav. I'm in grad school now. This is exciting. You are now officially, we've teased this for months now, but you are officially a grad student. We, we must have one PhD student on this show at all times, and since I graduated, like, you know, a month ago, you were forced to go and enter a PhD program, and now you've been, <laughs> and now you've been in the show, in the program for for like a, a whole week now. How's it going? You know, for a whole week is really it's it was orientation, and it was a lot <laughs> of meetings that could have been emails. Which you know, that's what orientation <laughs> is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel oriented? No, which is also <laughs> what orientation is, right? You're not actually coming out any better than when you started. I see. So you yeah. haven't actually gone to a class yet. I mean, I, well, you did, you sort yeah, of did because you, you went to classes, classes last year. Yeah. Oh, you have had classes. Okay. I had a class on Thursday that I'm actually taking. And then I had a class on Friday, which is full of all of my kids that I will be TAing for this master. And they are theater kids, which is terrifying. <laughs> they're terrifying? Are you? Are you well, just... They're just, they're very type A and outgoing. And despite what this podcast may have led you to believe I'm not. Mm-hmm. So I am a little bit worried that they're going to eat me. I don't know. You'll probably be fine. I mean, you're bigger yeah. than actually you're not bigger. Than, you're really short. No, so. I'm not. I'm <laughs> gonna, you're older, but I was going to say you're bigger than no, not really. Well, anyway, they're, they're a little over the top, which I feel like is a good segue to the topic this week, right? Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. That's our topic this okay. week. <laughs> this is, this is a show that I've pitched a few weeks ago because I was listening to another podcast, a favorite podcast of mine. I was listening to the show, How Did This Get Made? And it's a show where the three hosts, June, Paul, and Jason, they sit around and they analyze bad movies and they make fun of and analyze bad movies. And then they did Under the Cherry Moon, which is Prince's second movie. And I was like, wait a minute, that's not a bad movie. And it turned out they actually liked it. They were like, this is a ridiculous movie. It's a bad movie. But like, we actually enjoyed ourselves. And I spent the entire show going, this isn't a bad movie. Why is this one of this show? This is a really good movie. And I'm saying that non-ironically. So for people who listen to the show, there know, you know, there's an ongoing joke that like I love things like the TV show Manimal. I currently love the TV show Riverdale. And I think best show on television, right? But I realized the problems with Riverdale. I realized that Manimal and Cop Rock are not actually what you would call good. They are things that I enjoy. I maintain that Under the Cherry Moon is not just a thing that I enjoy. It is a really good movie. And the people who don't like it are wrong. And I wouldn't check the Rotten Tomato score. And they're wrong. And so I started posting about that. And then we decided, hey, we're going to do this episode. And then none of our co-hosts except for you had a chance to watch it. So we had to invite guests to kind of watch the movie with us. And I know at what we're least- saying is this is potentially the inverse of that time that I made us watch Kingsman and you're the only other co-host. Oh, God, I forgot that. <laughs> but, but see, yeah, actually but, a bad movie. Yes, the Kingsman and not Kingsman, the Kingsman for anybody who listening. I enjoyed Kingsman. I enjoyed Kingsman too. the Kingsman. Not so much. An unwatchable. So, yes, this is perhaps payback, but in a kinder way. Yeah, because right? uh, because this oh, is yes. actually a good. Movie. It's a really good movie. So first, I'd like to welcome back. It's been a while, but welcome back to the show, Doctor Christopher Bell. Hey, Chris, welcome back. Hey, thanks. <laughs> good to be back around. So remind people who you are. I was uh, telling people, I don't think you've met Monica before, but as I was saying, you are a former podcaster and professor. And I guess, I mean, would you say you're a producer now? What is your actual role at your new job? (laughs) So I am currently dual classing, so to speak, for those of you Dungeons & Dragons players. I'm dual classing right now. I am both an associate professor of media studies at the University of Colorado and also the director of creative inclusion at Skydance Animation Studios. So I essentially, my my role at Skydance is to sit with our directors, producers, writers, and ask sometimes uncomfortable questions, but mostly just whose voices do we hear and whose do we not, whose faces do we see and whose do we not? Who are we telling stories about? Who do we not? My job is to help us 
sort of accurately represent the diverse array of humanity, whatever that means mm-hmm. in the world. So, yeah, I somehow convinced this room full of studio executives that I belonged among them. So here I am. Congratulations on your new job. And you used to be, so last time you were on the show, mm-hmm. you used to host a similar show to this one, I guess. <laughs> That's what yes, I used to host the Deconstruction Workers podcast, which is still available on Apple, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. The episodes are still up. There are four seasons of it. Mm-hmm. But yes, very similar to Vox Podcast. Right. So you are no stranger to the format or of what we do. No, this is what I do. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So also on the show, we have Monica. Who did you bring? I did bring some people. I talked some people into movie night for this particular because I, I was actually pretty jazzed about getting to watch Under the Cherry Moon. And so I roped some other people into it. The first person that I roped into it is my friend, Anna Baumgarten. Anna, you're no stranger to making movies. If you want to introduce yourself to the listeners. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. I make movies. (laughs) (laughs) I've made a movie. Yeah. I just, my debut feature film is coming out early next year. So I am a writer, director, producer, and I also work in TV development, mostly unscripted. So right now I'm getting to work on a lot of HGTV content, which has been very fun. So do a little bit of everything. That's very cool. I hope when your movie comes out, you'll come back or you're just going to forget about Monica and be like, oh, we have better people to hang out with now. Now have I worked on the movie. Yeah, I can't forget about Monica. (laughs) (laughs) I also that and I say that knowing full well that Monica was just saying that, you know, you weren't even just at her wedding. You literally officiated her wedding. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Anna. Nice to meet you. Who else is here? And my friend, Lindsay. Lindsay, if you want to introduce yourself, because you are also no stranger to movies for the listener. Yeah, I don't make movies, but I'm no stranger <laughs> to watching movies. And I don't have any fancy qualifications at all. <laughs> That's not that's fine. Well, actually, I'm wondering, Monica, you said you roped them in. So how did this happen? How, uh, so I should rewind a little bit. We're talking about Under the Cherry Moon, which, again, one of the best movies ever. And when I watched when I said I had a problem with people calling it bad and I wrote the blog up, Chris immediately volunteered. So you presumably had already seen the film and know that it is one of the greatest films ever. So I'm going to I'm going to out myself immediately mm-hmm. here in this conversation, which is whatever your conception is of sort of the pinnacle, the apex of musical genius, whether that's your John Lennon, that's your Kurt Cobain, that's your whoever that is for you, understand in my universe, that is Prince. Yes. So I go beyond being a Prince fan. Prince literally kind of defines what I think of as music and everything else moves off of that. So when you were saying, I want to talk about Prince, I was like, oh, do I have things to say about that? So Absolutely. Okay. And then Anna and Lindsay, you guys got, as Monica said, roped in. How did this happen? Well, Monica and I were having a very romantic dinner at Olive Garden. earlier this week and she was talking about she was like yo you want to come and watch under the cherry moon on friday and i was like i have no idea what that is i'm absolutely in (laughs) okay so you didn't romantic dinners at olive garden are like that's not the first time that's happened no 10 for 10 we we recommend (laughs) (laughs) and Lindsay. I'm just kind of always down for movie nights. I've been trying to get Monica to join a musical movie night that me and my other friend do for a few months, but I haven't managed to rope her in yet. But I think now that I've joined her movie night, now she kind of owes me. Yeah, I'm obligated now. I would go, but it's kind of a commute. Um, <laughs> a, little, a little bit of a drive for me, but I love musical theater movies. So uh, it's very tempting. Very tempting. So, Matt, for me, I don't know if the listeners know this, but I actually grew up kind of down the street from Prince's recording studio. So my dad lived in Chanhassen, Minnesota, and literally the instructions to get to my dad's house were... And then you turn left at Prince's recording studio Mm -hmm. and you drive for a quarter of a mile and then you see my dad's house. Like this was very close. And growing up in that, then it just sort of becomes like part of your community identity, right? To be able to be like, I live in this small town that no one other than Prince lives in. And you hear all of these stories about how like Prince would just like 
I never got to see him. I was never that lucky. My my stepmom actually went to a few like of the private concerts that they did at the recording studio. And you would hear all these stories about like Prince just dressed as Prince, riding his bike through the park. Yes. Prince just <laughs> leaving his car running with all of the doors open at the gas station. Like Prince just being Prince in this tiny rural Minnesotan town. And so like just the mythology of Prince is something that I've always been very familiar with. And but I'd never watched a Prince movie and I was like, that's clearly an overdue part of my education. Oh, you've never so, seen any of them. You haven't even no, seen I hadn't um, even Purple seen Rain. Purple Rain. And so okay. wow. however, my mom used to always my mom is a huge Prince fan. And she used to always tell me these stories of like she and my dad went to go see the premiere of Purple Rain, and it was an absolutely packed theater. Absolutely. Which women were throwing their panties at, at the screen, the screen yes. as if <laughs> this were a live concert and Prince could catch those panties. And there's something where I was like, I need to understand the phenomenon of how you go to a film and you throw panties at it. Because like I've been to a lot of movies and I've never seen that. And I, yeah. I want to understand. Oh. Well, Prince was a special, magical individual. And that's kind of, I guess that's, we start obviously i love this movie like chris i have i've always said i was talking about this recently at work where we were talking about the idea of celebrity and what was cool and, and I, was, I pointed out that my entire life you know the way i dress everything about me has been this lifelong quest to just be the merger of prince and billy d williams because those are you know as a child of the 70s like that's just what cool is i was a young black kid and you see prince and you see billy d and you're like these are the two possible visions of masculinity i will do them both please thank you and that's who i am to this day i dress not exactly because you can't get it you know like i have to have an ass in the seat of the pants in order to, in order to go to work but right. like but that's just the rule it's a rule that i do not accept but that I, that I grudgingly follow but everything about him like like literally purple rain it's the one everybody likes and then this comes out and i checked it's got a 36 percent on rotten tomatoes how is that even possible as, but like, so, so the first question I had was, did everybody like it or were you like, oh, okay, I get why this isn't good. But, cause I'm, cause I, I don't see how anybody could not like this movie. I thought it was amazing. I was expecting it to be a dumpster fire to a certain degree. <laughs> And it wasn't. I feel I'm still formulating my feelings on it. I feel like I felt a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And definitely a great group watch. I mean, Mav, as someone who loves Batman and Robin and tries to talk everyone into watching Batman and Robin, like this is basically black and white Batman and Robin. Like it's phenomenal. I think it's better. Well, it's different because Batman and Robin is slapsticky, right? And I think people didn't get that because people went to Batman and Robin and they said, well, this isn't serious. And the answer is yes, it's not serious, right? This, I think, has serious bits. And so on how did this get made? One of their complaints was they're like, we don't know. Is he doing a screwball comedy or is he doing some kind of film noir? And the answer is yes. yes. Both of those those things. (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah, it's like and they're like it, it, this doesn't seem like a movie from the 80s how did this happen and it's from 1986 by the way it's not a movie um, from the 80s it's a movie from the 1940s 40s it's yeah, yeah, so made it's, in the 1980s right and it's, they're like why is it in black and white prince is all about purple i'm like no this movie is prince grew up watching old black and white films and then prince became famous and he's like i would like to make i would one like of those. to do that yeah exactly that's, <laughs> that's all this movie is it's like literally i have all the money in the world and i have the cachet of being prince and i just made this you know, award-winning film, Purple Rain. So people will let me do whatever I want. This is whatever this is what I, I want. want to do. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And that's what this is. This is a throwback of, I just want all the joy of making a movie from the 1940s that I used to watch with my grandparents growing up. Like, like, like an old film that I used to watch on UHF t- television. And that's what this is. And it is so endearing. Like there are parts that, cause they're like, it moves fast. And yes, there are, they move from scene to scene. There's, there's lots of stuff that doesn't have a lot of cohesive glue. They just need to get to the next homage to like, uh, like why is he acting like Bella Lugosi? And the answer is because Bella Lugosi made movies in the forties that Prince liked. And he just wanted to do a Bella Lugosi bit. Like that's why that's in there. <laughs> it makes no sense, but it's magical. He just looks, everything about this is so joyous and happy. 
for this weird film noir, you know, mega drama that brought the world Kristen Scott Thomas. I mean, here's the thing. If I had a million dollars in a blank check, I would also probably go to the French Riviera, dress up in the <laughs> most fabulous outfits I could think of and pretend that I was in a 1940s movie. Like mm-hmm. the idea of that being someone's fantasy is like... I mean, that's kind of the whole point of Westworld, right? Is that you get a bunch of money and then you get to romp around like pretending that you live in some other time. And yes, we all know that is problematic when we put it in the context of Westworld. But like there is something incredibly relatable about all of that. That yeah, Prince does look like he is having the best time ever during this movie. Lindsay, did you like it or did you end up, were you like, this was just the thing? I thought it was a very fun movie. It was enjoyable to watch, especially as a group. And I didn't know what to expect. Like, it's definitely <laughs> not a dumpster fire, but it is, it's definitely a unique movie. <laughs> I regret my use of dumpster fire in the context of Prince ever, especially amongst some lovely, loyal fans. I, I didn't mean it like that. I just mean based on the the notoriety of the film. Well, what I will say is I get I'm a huge Prince fan and Prince has another movie called Graffiti Bridge. Graffiti Bridge is a, a direct sequel to Purple Rain, which Purple Rain has a 70 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Graffiti Bridge has an 18% on Rotten Tomatoes. I love Graffiti Bridge. That is deserved. Highly underrated movie. It is both great and terrible all at the same time. Yes, right. And if you watch Graffiti Bridge and you're like, this makes no sense. I don't get it. And what I am seeing, I do not like. I understand that. Like, it is reasonable to go to Graffiti Bridge and be like, this is, oh my God, what is he doing? 100% agree. Yeah, because Graffiti Bridge is, that literally is, you've given Prince a blank check and you've let him just do the, you know, just let stuff spill out of Prince's head and it doesn't have to make sense. And it's just bizarreness. And then you've said that it's a sequel to this beloved movie and it's not <laughs> He's the same character vaguely. This is not that under the cherry moon is it is there's a film noir. The, the premise is Prince and tricky, right? Let me freeze because he's very not much not Prince. If you watch Purple Rain and Graffiti Bridge, Prince is playing a character named the kid, which is for all intents and purposes, just Prince. <laughs> That's and everybody else in the film is playing themselves. Morris Day is in the movie as Morris Day. Jerome Benton is in the movie as Jerome Benton. Apollonia is Apollonia. Like that. They're just playing themselves, and Prince just gives himself a cool name because being named Prince wasn't cool enough, apparently. This is different. Prince plays a character named Christopher Tracy. Christopher and his best friend, Tricky, are um, brothers. Pause. They are they are brothers. They are brothers. But there's this weird sexual tension between them yes. two. That makes no sense, but makes complete sense. And it's questionable. Actually, I question whether or not they're brothers. There are parts where they say they are, but are they or is that part of the con? I thought they're half brothers. He says that. He says we definitely have different different dads. We definitely have different fathers because we have different colored skin. That's what he says. But we never find out Tricky's last name or even his real first name. He's just Tricky, you know. It's like it doesn't matter is the answer. It doesn't matter whether they're actually related or not. They are certainly partners in crime. They are literally con men who seem to be running a gigolo swindle in France. They live in France. They're Americans and they are sleeping with older women, older rich women to swindle them out of money and hopefully earn enough money to make their way back to the States. They are apparently from Miami. That is their motivation. And then they meet a rich heiress named Mary. And the idea is that Christopher is supposed to be, you know, latching onto her to get her fortune. But over the course of the film, they just sort of fall for her, fall in love with her, become actual friends with her. And this is the story of their relationship. And then at the end, Mary's father, who is a bad guy, because purely because the film needs a bad guy, like there's no reason other than we need a villain. So her father is the villain. Her father kills Christopher Tracy and it's sad and emotional. And then Mary and Tricky go into business together running real estate. That is the story. (laughs) Full spoilers. A couple of points of order. Number one, Mm -hmm. Isaac is a villain and a creeper. The Mm -hmm. scene where he brushes Mary's hair is a problem. uh, Oh, yeah. We'll we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. As the father of a teenage daughter, at least, there's some 
plot points around that hairbrushing scene that are not okay. But number one, Isaac isn't totally wrong about Christopher Tracy. Oh, that he's dude, absolutely right. That dude is a hustler and a con man, and he sleeps with wealthy women for money. And her father knows that because he's sleeping with the same woman. Mm-hmm. So that like like he's not wrong about him specifically. Number two. Tracy and Tricky, maybe being brothers or maybe not being brothers, I would argue, has a profound impact on how you see the film because of the the subtle hints that continue to get dropped through that maybe they are brothers, but maybe they are also like sometimes in threesomes or sometimes in like two of them. Yes. Or sometimes maybe even just the two of them, they hang out in the bath. There was that bath scene where Prince is in the bath and Tricky's on the phone. And there's, there are these weird sexual tension moments between the two of them that I just find fascinating. Especially if you layer on top that maybe they are brothers. Maybe I should point out here. A lot of times on this show, for instance, or and shows like this, particularly academics will do this thing where we will do either sexual or queer readings of stuff in order to sort of, you know, push the narrative and like trying to dissect things academically and go, okay, so what happens if we look at this as though they're bisexual and perhaps in love? This is not us doing that. The movie very specifically implies that maybe they sleep together. There's a lot of there's points where they dance with each other and and tricky dips Christopher as though, you know, you, romantically as though Christopher were the woman. And this happens in the exact same way that will happen with Mary later. It, it is like, it is a very clear we are drawing a parallel and we want you to be uncomfortable with the fact that these two guys that we just told you were brothers are probably sleeping together. And their faces are inches from each other on that dip as though maybe they're going to talk or maybe they're going to kiss. And that's the funny part yes. of that scene. So yeah, but you're right. Like there, it's just, it's built in. We're not I'm projecting curious. that. Well, we've got three people who've never seen it before. Did yeah. you guys feel like they were involved? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hell yeah. I would also just like to take a moment to say that I am Tricky's biggest fan. I mm-hmm. love Tricky. Tricky's amazing. Everything he said, I was like, say more. (laughs) (laughs) Tricky played by Jerome Benton. Very underrated. This is um, this is one of the few things that Jerome Benton did of note without Morris Day, because Morris isn't in this film. Morris Morris Day of the time. Jerome Benton is usually portrayed as sort of his second banana, whereas here I don't think he's really Prince's sidekick. No, he's there on equal footing. To the uh, like, one of the conflicts is that Tricky is also in love with Mary, though she doesn't seem to, she seems to only see him as a friend, at least eventually like the relationships very much change from scene to scene like they they go through what probably should be months of relationship development over what we perceive as like three days so so it's unclear how long they're really hanging out with mary yeah but like so does little mermaid right right, right they right, literally only get three days it's built into the plot like it's <laughs> right but, but i think this is just movie convention movie time yeah right? yeah this is a this is a movie time convention they could have been there for months we don't know i mean there's definitely like in our group watching experience there were multiple times in which we screamed at the tv like they're gonna kiss yeah happen. <laughs> like you know we're not saying that just like out of, as a joke we're saying that because like we're trying to predict what's gonna happen next and there is a lot of close talking there's a lot of sharing small elevators and small spaces <laughs> Like there are just a lot of there's a lot of what feels like Mary's not really the thing that they're in love with. But we're having a little bit of a like lack of a better phrasing, like it's not gay if it's in a three way like Mm -hmm. sort of tension in which he really seems a lot more upset. Christopher like (laughs) is not involved with him than the fact that Christopher is involved with Mary. Okay, so one of the plot points of this film is they find out about Mary in the newspaper. This young woman is turning 21 and is supposed to come into her trust fund money soon. So $50 the $50 million. $50 million. And the plot point in the very, very beginning of the film, this is the bathtub scene. Christopher sitting in the bathtub 
and Tricky is just hanging out with him, watching his friend take a bath, you know, as you do. Um, <laughs> rose petals into that bath. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> it is a very loving scene. And they're like, we need money. Hey, look, this chick's turning 21 and coming into a bunch of money. Would you be willing to marry her for $50 million? I would seriously consider it. And that is the inciting incident of the film is them going off after Mary to, you know, trick her out of her fortune. That is why they go to meet her. And then they try to hustle her and she's frankly too smart for it but she takes a liking to them and the three of them become friends christopher and mary apparently fall in love and then we are led to believe that tricky is mad because he loved mary and i could have taken her and so he gets mad at christopher which makes no sense because tricky has done nothing but try to push them together like that's their entire plan is for you to fall in love with so like either you're not into it or you are but it doesn't make sense for him to be mad because they fell in love because that's clearly what they were supposed to do so i think he's mad because christopher's really in love and he wants christopher well, like, let me offer an alternate reading as well, which is I don't necessarily read that as Tricky's in love with Tracy or that he's mad that Tracy is in love with with Mary. I read that as because of a specific scene. I read that as Tricky is mad at Tracy because he never even got the opportunity mm-hmm. because of the scene where Tracy literally tells Tricky, you handle the money and let me handle the draws. Yeah. Right. Like, mm-hmm. like Tricky was never, uh, was never even a consideration. And I think that is the thing that upsets him. If so, you think, want, so you think Tricky does want Mary? Cause I, I think well, Tricky I mean, wants the shot at Mary and is okay. never even considered given the opportunity. Maybe see to me, and I'm, I'm curious how other people focus to me. I think Tricky does not like being left out of the threesome. And I mean this emotionally, right? Like I, I think that I don't think that he wants to be the one in a relationship with Mary. I think that up until this point in the movie, they were a thruple. And now it's just like, why are you icing me out of this? That's how I feel. I think he's showing up and he's saying, well, she'd be in love with me if I tried. He's saying that. But I think it's more just that he's that he's being a dick because he feels left out, which and I'm going to want to talk about Katie a lot in a little bit. But to me, I feel like Katie calls him on that. Katie is another character who's like is very much a tertiary character in this film. And I would argue the most fascinating person in the entire movie. But, uh, But I'm curious, where did you guys fall i yeah i didn't really read that he was in love with chris but that it was a mix between business and jealousy mm-hmm. or that yes that he didn't get like a chance he was being sort of yeah i also don't think that he's really in love with mary and he's more just annoyed that he has been iced out and like ghosted the scene where he is like waiting at the bar i think was very emotional for him and then also they have several scenes where he's like hey like don't get emotionally invested in this this is about getting the money and getting out and getting back to miami he i mentioned this to monica at the time that i thought the little pep talk he gives him was very funny and sort of flipped on his he- its head because it's usually the sort of thing you would hear from women talking about men where he says like oh like the women aren't actually interested in you like they'll just use you up and then like throw you away yeah Yeah. So I felt like he was taking an angle of like, don't forget what we're doing here. We're supposed to be getting the money and you're getting too emotionally invested. And in the process, you are leaving out your best friend, me. And I don't like any of that. I was pissed. (laughs) Christopher left Tricky at the bar that night. His brother, his lover. I just, oh, I felt it. I was like, that's cold. I didn't think he was going to do that. I thought, you know, they were still going to show up to the bar. They were just going to be together yeah yeah but i agree i think tricky just i think he wants to be involved and i think like what you said like sure he wants a crack at mary but that's not really what it's about it's about being included and being a part of the threesome i feel like he's very comfortable in that threesome space yeah 
where I think Tricky is right, I think Christopher was entirely wrong. There was no reason to leave Tricky alone at the bar. Like he could just say, I've got a date with Mary. And Tricky would have been like, I mean, if he was going to be jealous, even he would have just said, okay, fine. I mean, I guess that's part of the plan. Or because he's like, and when he sees him, you know, Christopher's like, sorry, I got way late. I'm sorry. I stood you up. And Tricky says, no, you got late. That's what it was. And you left me there for sex. And like, yeah, of course he does. That's he's done that twice before in the movie, like with Mrs. Wellington. Like, like that's literally Christopher's job is to go off and have sex. Of course he went and did that. So like, it makes no sense for Christopher to have screwed Tricky over, other than the fact that Christopher is being an asshole right there. That's yeah. the problem with it. And I think I think in that respect, for whatever reason, Tricky is mad. Tricky's anger is entirely justified in that moment. Like, you know, like he you know, he gets drunk and he's kind of a jerk about it and Katie calls him on it. But I think that the reason his hurt, I think, is completely reasonable given what Christopher did. And I don't think it's reasonable to be mad at Mary because she doesn't know. She just showed up for their date. Christopher didn't have to lie about it. I want to jump back a second to something. I So you were talking about how the pep talk between Tracy and Tricky feels like what women would say to each other. And I think it's interesting because if this is a film noir, Tracy is not the like debonair, you know, gentleman. Tracy is the like songstress. He's the what do they call it? the femme fatale, right? Like mm-hmm. he's not the he's not the debonair gentleman, and so it makes sense that's the kind of conversation that they are having because of the role he is playing in that sort of film noir construct in a way that I think is just really interesting. He casts himself in that space because he's the you know he's the director. So just the way that they treat him uh, in that film, I think, is really interesting. That was one of the things that that how did I how did this get made pointed out? They were confused by it because they were like, it seems like Prince has cast himself as the femme fatale. And yes, that is exactly the role that he's in. He is the protagonist, but there are partly because he's Prince and he's a beautiful man. You have the scenes where there's lots of the camera slow panning up and down Prince's body. Oh, that was yes. at the beginning so the, where he's laying yeah. on the bed and it like yes. comes it across. Is literally, it is literally yeah. like stops on his ass and then like keeps. Yes, it is a Laura Mulvey right out of the male gaze, and, except that like he's male, so it becomes queer, and it is very definitely an intentional move. Like Prince knows what he's doing by basically filming himself like he is Lauren Bacall, and it's like this is beautiful. And it's and I mean I saw this movie when I was in sixth grade. I saw this movie when it came out in 1986, and it's like okay discover things about yourself here you go this is a this is an amazing move that i think is intentionally queer and i don't think there's any other way like as much so as the obvious sexual tension between between tricky and christopher tracy i think that this is a move to make you realize yes we are objectifying prince please be attracted to this what a beautiful sixth grade find Really, I yeah. This is a this movie. I didn't get to see this in the theaters originally because I was off. I might have been seventh grade. I know it was sixth or seventh grade. I was off doing something. You know, I was enough of a teenager that I had my own life aside from my family. Like you know, I would go as either at a party or maybe at a soccer game or a football game or something. And then I came home and it's like, hi, everybody. And so we're doing, oh, we went and saw a movie. What'd you go see? We went and saw the new Prince movie. And I'm like, I hate you all. And I just like saw because like my family went and saw knowing that I was a massive Prince fan, went and saw a Prince movie without me. So, so I had to go see it later. Oh, I'm glad you saw it, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is, it's so beautiful, like in every in every way. So, oh, also, the theme song to the to this is called Sometimes It Snows in April. So people know this is the song that I want played at my own funeral. I, so here's the thing people sleep on this soundtrack parade parade the album parade mm-hmm. has amazing music on it the big hit from this from the soundtrack was the song yes. kiss right mm-hmm. i would argue not even one of the top three songs on the album like absolutely not there, mm-hmm. there are songs on you this. Need another lover like you need a hole in the head oh it's, my god that's brilliant. such a great song mm-hmm. for me the song is girls and boys like mm-hmm. that song is one of the top five print songs ever written. Like the closing song, Mountains, which, by the way, the only scene in the entire film, they shot. It's funny the film is in black and white because they didn't shoot the film in black and white. They shot the film in color and mm-hmm. moved it to black and white because the studio wanted to be able to release the film in color if it wanted to. And the only surviving color footage from this film 
is the music video for Mountains, which they just play over the end credits in black and white, which is which I think is also pretty fantastic. But that song Mountains also, I, I would argue, better than Kiss. So mm-hmm. it's just it's such a it's such an interesting legacy of that album. Can I clarify something real quick? Because we were talking about this at the end of the movie, and I'm not sure if we figured it out. But so was the soundtrack written entirely like all of the Prince songs in this movie were written for this movie, including Kiss, and then released as an album parade? Is that so? Is this a jukebox musical? Is the question, and I, I would, I don't know. Mav might have his own opinion on this. I would argue the answer is it is yes. Like I'm pretty sure the music was written first, but I don't because they had to. They didn't even have a screenwriter for this. They bought this film with no script. Right. So I think it's a complicated. I think it is a jukebox musical in that I think the purpose is to. This is. I think if you'd asked Prince, he would have said it was more of like a rock opera. (laughs) You know, he's got intention to everything to all the music he's making. But the Prince process of making music has always been or well, actually, and it's very much starting now now is around the time where he's actually building Paisley Park and everything. And the Prince process of making music is I live and breathe music and I write it down and then it shows up in something. And so I think that what's happening is he's starting this thing where he, he famously wires all of Paisley Park. The, yeah, I was about to say, he's never it. not making music. There's there right. are microphones wired every room in his house. house. Yeah. Right. So he's so I think that's what happened. What happens is he's like, I am inspired. I will write another lover hole in the head right now. And then it needs to work its way into Into the the song, into the movie, because things like so the girls and boys scene, I think, is brilliant, but it makes no sense. It is just visually it is just visually appealing. And it's where girls and when girls and boys plays, that's where Mary really starts to sort of accept that she's falling. I don't mean romantically. She's falling for these guys. She's falling in love with them. They're becoming friends. And she's, you know, falling for Christopher a little bit. But it's when she goes from being antagonistic with them to really being friends with them during that scene. But really, it's because Prince wants to do this thing from 40s movies where sometimes you just break into a musical number and you dance on top of a piano. That's what it's about. It's just he clearly worked backwards from, OK, I need to end up on that piano. How do I get there? And I and so I think that the music is just sort of for this. But I don't know if there's a distinguishing moment in Prince's head between when am I writing a movie and when am I writing the song? Right. I do think, though, that scene does something. It is a it's the mirror scene to Mary's birthday party. So at Mary's birthday party, the film goes out of its way for Prince and Tricky to walk in there and to be sort of supernova surface of the sun level hot and Mm -hmm. everyone around them to be the forgive me for a moment here but for everyone around them to be the wackest white people they could find (laughs) so it's like they that scene is super white the planet rock drum solo part is my favorite part of the entire movie because it is so (laughs) to a level i cannot fathom and then later when they go to this really stuffy white club tricky goes out and gets the biggest sort of <laughs> ghetto blaster boombox i've ever seen in my life puts it mm-hmm. on this piano and turns that stuffy white restaurant into a black nightclub for like five seconds before isaac shows up and ruins everything right so i think it's i think that scene is doing a really specific thing to sort of bookend mary's journey as a more worldly person but what it counts as as worldly is in direct opposition to what people think worldly is because that that boombox scene comes right after they make fun of her for not knowing what Recasto is because she's too white to understand black vernacular. And I, there's such a race element to this movie. It's the closest Prince ever gets to an actual race narrative that I find amazing and fascinating. And as a young, very light skinned black person growing up in my life who also encountered this movie in middle school was all of the things to me. Mm-hmm. 
I will say that in our group watching, that was also something that we sort of immediately picked up on where I was like, I really love how Prince's idea of white people happens to be like a lot of Aquanet hairspray, and tiny, <laughs> like tiny spiky bangs. And like, I was like, yeah, this is not white people. This is like a parody of white Europeans. And he's not wrong. Like every <laughs> everything about this was like, yes, this is like if you were to like make a parody of white culture, I'm like, yes, this is absolutely the things that you would pick up on and emphasize. And like, I, I for me, I was like, this is absolutely brilliant as someone who's always thinking about like costuming and hairstyling and the ways that you can add additional layers to a narrative. I thought it was really smart and really effective the way that it was done at her birthday party. The, the part of that scene for me is when the two little twin boys are trying to pick up the older teenage girl and they're like, we have push. We have cable TV. How about it, baby? <laughs> it's just like, I, I love that scene. Those little vignettes were so poignant and worked. They really worked for me. I also, I mean, I need to address like when the dad first comes in, it's like if you couldn't tell he had money from his accent and his <laughs> entourage and his mansion, he's wearing a dollar sign in on his lapel. <laughs> and I, he and, yeah, me and Monica were like, yeah, this slaps. Isaac is, oh, I should look up the actor's name. His name is Dude from Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. So Isaac is played by Stephen Burkhoff, who at this point, I know know mostly from being the villain in the movie Beverly Hills Cop where he plays Victor Maitland and he is essentially the same character that he is here except that Prince clearly saw Beverly Hills Cop and was like get me that guy and then the direction that he gave him was do that thing you did in the last movie just turn it up to 15 just just turn the knob way up and it's just and there's no Isaac's evil like you said he's right about he's right to be suspicious of Christopher because his problem with Christopher is well this guy is just trying to con you out of your money and yeah that's what he's doing now Isaac's not a good person Isaac is having an affair. Isaac is treating Mary Ann and her mother like garbage. Isaac wants to basically, you know, he's not interested in his daughter's happiness. He's forcing her to get married to a man that she doesn't love because he wants to combine their fortunes. Like literally, Mary is just a business deal to Isaac. He is a bad person. But like his motivations for being evil are literally, I think, that Prince needs a bad guy for this movie. Like <laughs> that's what's going on. It's just like, oh, yeah, Isaac, go do some evil here. So in the end of the film, for instance, Isaac kills Christopher. Has or, him killed. Has yeah, well, yeah, he is shoot him. And so the cops shoot him. And why? Because they're bad. Like there's no they're like, like he's committed no crime whatsoever. The cops know he's committed no crime. The cops are like, well, we can't go after him. Mary left of her own free will. We've got witnesses. And Mary's mother knows that. But Isaac's like, no, she's been kidnapped by that man. Go kill this unarmed man. And the cops are like, I mean, you are rich. So I guess <laughs> and, they, and they kill Christopher. That's like how it goes. And I guess I guess because of that, Isaac eventually goes to jail. It's not clear what happens to him at the end. Mary gets mad at him because, you know, he killed her boyfriend. And then somehow, then yeah, she still ends, ends up with all of the money that yes. she wasn't supposed to get, which I think maybe is a callback to like, there is that scene where where she's like, well, my dad was just upset or sad that like he missed my birthday. And so therefore he gave me this purse full of money. It was like immediately after the scene of her like being in trouble. And so I don't know, maybe money just means something different to a man who has enough money to purchase a dollar sign brooch. Right? <laughs> I don't know. I also think her dad killed her love and thought, how do I make this right? With oh, so you think he just, you think he get you think he gets off on he gets off, but then he's just like, well, maybe my daughter will keep talking to me if, if I buy her a hotel in Miami. Oh, I yeah. think there's clearly no legal consequences for him. I think that's pretty clear. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was the cop who shot Prince or Christopher. Yeah, I've never been able. I've never been able to like sort of rationalize out what happened there. So, so I, I don't know. That is one that that one's one of the least clear things in the movie to me. Like, yes, I I get that the cop did it, 
but it just feels like because she ends up with the money, Mary does end up with the money. I've always assumed that something must have happened to Isaac, but I guess maybe he just, you know, caved. How I, yeah, how I read it is she, she wasn't supposed to get the money and then he kills Tracy and she's like, I'm not going home, going with Tracy. And that's her like, I'm an adult now. And then that's how I read like, so she proved she was an adult, quote unquote. So now she gets the money. Like, it's very, I didn't read too much more into it than that. Okay. I mean, that's part of it, right? You can't read into this movie. You just have to accept. Exactly. Right? (laughs) I really want a map of this island in which there's a grotto and Prince needs a boat and Tricky can run there. Can run to it. Yeah. Yeah. Tricky (laughs) and Katie run to the island. (laughs) It also takes for Prince to take the boat there. Right. Like, like, Tricky is a really fast runner or Prince stole a really slow boat and I'm not sure which one but there's just a sense in which you're like you don't get a map you just get to it just happened you just accept Tricky's actually faster than the boat because Tricky and Katie get to fight people like so basically Tricky and Christopher and Katie are together and he's like, you guys hold them off. I'm going to go get Mary. And then Christopher goes and gets on the boat to go to the island. And then Tricky and Katie fight the bad guys, beat them, and then run to the island and get there before Christopher. <laughs> it makes no sense. There's no point where, like, where was Christopher all that time? I don't know. He was away so that he could not be important. on the other side. Yeah. yeah. Not important. <laughs> I think that not important piece is such a running. I don't even know if it's a, an intentional running gag, but it becomes a running gag in the film of like the things that just make no sense. And then you just keep going like they're in the French Riviera, but everyone speaks English except for the people who speak French. But then there are the people who like they they're only speaking french oh i just i have a clarification question from the prayer when prince it's like they do the whole car race situation and then they're together and then they get in this like somewhat of a spat and then he gets up goes to the telephone booth and calls her dad at his mistress's house that's right that's yeah yeah he calls mrs wellington her dad's mistress and also uh, is also sleeping with her dad's mistress because um, yes, yes. money. Yeah. I'm yeah. curious. What I'm curious about is the choice to call her dad at that moment. I mean, the him knowing that he is currently at Mrs. Wellington's house is like beside Not the important. point. Not important. Yeah. Yeah. His choice to call her dad. I thought that was really. He's just being a dick. He's antagonizing him on purpose. Yeah, he's literally like, there's no reason to call Isaac. He literally calls Isaac to be like, hey, I just fucked your daughter. You know, just saying like, that's it. Like, there's no good reason for it other than the fact that he just wants to tease him. And he basically says, you know, he's reminding Isaac, I fucked your girlfriend and now I'm about to fuck your daughter. It's just so. Those are my draws. So mean to Mary, too. That's what got me. Yep. Oh, very much so. Christopher is kind of a dick. He's not a good person. Like, I think he's the hero, but he's not actually good. He's, he, you know, he's a weird kind of asshole con man. Yeah. And I mean, Isaac is unabashedly evil because we need him to be worse in order for the movie to work. But I think the thing that makes Mary eventually sort of fall for Christopher and become friends with Tricky is when they're basically just mean to her about her not understanding black culture, which she has. It's a weird thing where it's like you cannot accurately speak American Ebonics. (laughs) You know, rich girl from France does not know, you know, Southern American Miami black slang. Why should she like there's no like like they're like it's not logical for her to have been able to read phonetically worded black slang. English is not her first language. She shouldn't be able to do that. But they're doing it and they're laughing at her because they're kind of mean and it works because they're charming. You know, he's charming enough to get away with it. But like everything about him is just, uh, oh, I'm doing this like horrible thing, but it's cute <laughs> because I'm Prince and I'm OK with it. Like, I think that's the character. I think he's flawed in that way. Yes, I am just sad. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to before we're out of time. I want to I have feelings about Katie. Katie is in many ways like I, I think she is the most underserved character in this film. Katie is Tricky and Christopher's landlord, landlady, I guess, who is also 
very clearly sleeping with Tricky. She's friends with them. She is enough in a relationship with Tricky that once he moves back to Miami after Christopher's dead, she moves with him. So she goes back home with him. But she is completely and totally chill with the fact that like he is also in love with Mary or Christopher or, you know, it's unclear. But like she is the best girlfriend ever is basically what I think is going on. But she has her own story because she's clearly like sort of part of the group only she's only really in like three scenes like it's so so it's weird like i i I have so many questions about how she ends up in places right she you know she's definitely she definitely knows them and she knows mary yes did you guys (laughs) how do you guys reckon that character i think pretty clearly katie knows that tricky is not serious about mary like that mary is a mark for most of the for most of the film for tricky and i think katie's pretty well aware of that because she again she uh, at the end of the film she ends up with tricky i don't think there i don't think the relationship between katie and tricky was ever in any kind of jeopardy let's not forget that the movie ends before we go to the heaven music video the movie ends with an upskirt shot on katie it does that's, mm-hmm. yeah. that's actually that's all that's all i wanted to say <laughs> I just think she's I mean, I wonder what her she's clearly got feelings for Tricky. Like, I think that he's her tenant because they have to pay her rent. But when Chris comes home one day, Tricky and Katie are having sex in the lobby of the building they live in. So they both have apartments there. So they could have just gone somewhere, but they're just sort of having sex, you know, behind a counter in the lobby for fun because they're kinky. And, And I'm cool with all that. But it, are they a couple? Because she's not rich. Katie's not rich. So she's not a she's not like a mark and they are paying her and she's clearly aware of what they do. So is it just like a right now we're being friends with benefits, but it grows into something more, at least more enough that she's willing because I think we're definitely supposed to see Katie and Tricky as a couple at the end of the film, right? Yes. I, I would say that it does. It struck me at least as this was originally intended as a way to get a discount on rent. So, but then that doesn't happen, right? Because the joke is brought up that like they both still have to pay each other rent in full at the beginning and at the end of the film. And so then that's for me the point where I'm like, oh, they're doing this because they like each other. And that this mm-hmm. is different because it's the one scenario in which the sex is not transactional and therefore the sex is because they enjoy each other's company or sexuality or whatever. That And that for me was the indicator that this is the real relationship of the or tricky of the film. Agreed. So are we supposed to believe that she really would have thrown them out? Because I don't think she would have. Because I think no, she's that seems like a running I think joke. The impression, yeah. I think the joke is she knows they owe them money. She knows they're good for it when they can be. And in the meantime, uh, we're going to have sex, you know, because I don't think she's sleeping with Christopher. I think she's just sleeping with, with Tricky. There's no inclination. Like, I think she's friends with them, with Christopher. And there's I, people were worried on the other show on the, on how did this get made? They were like concerned by the, the Bella Lugosi eyes section. There's a point where before Christopher gives her the rent money there, he's kind of making scary eyes at her and trying to terrorize her. Like he's going to, and they're like, is he going to murder her? Is he going to rape her? And I'm like, no, I think no. he's being goofy. I think he does. Yeah. He does this because yeah. she's laughing. She's, she is amused by this. She's like, Oh, he's doing the stupid eye thing that doesn't work on me. And you know that, but she's like, right. she's playfully running from him. And I think that's how we're supposed to read it. And I don't think she ever was going to really throw him out any more than Tricky is going to throw her out at the end of the movie. It's just their little joke is, oh, you owe me money because I'm your landlord and really I'm your girlfriend. Exactly. The way they all sexy got into that tiny elevator at the beginning of the movie, though, leads me to believe that Christopher is in on it sometimes. But like. Tricky and Katie are a thing, I believe, you know, at the beginning. Yeah. And then they're they're in a relationship and Christopher just gets to fuck every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I can can believe that. I mean, and I'm fine with it. I mean, because, again, I'm this is why I'm. 
because the incestness of it gets me a little weirded out and the polyamory angle doesn't. This is why I think that they're not actually brothers. I think they say they are sometimes as part of the con, but it could be either way, right? Like, because the place where they're really saying it is when Christopher's saying, what if you get arrested? I'm going to be like, oh, brothers. No, I don't know this man. You know, which are they supposed to be brothers or is that just something they tell people in order to get out of things? I don't know. See, that's and, the part where I actually most- read them as brothers, right? Mm -hmm. finally he's like he said he was my brother he's not my brother like I think the joke Mm -hmm. plays in the opposite direction same joke but I think it just plays the opposite direction and it could totally be either way (laughs) so I just wanted to note that might be another reason that Tricky is angry with him because he's sort of invited into his own thruple situation with Katie and then he Mm -hmm. ices him out of the couple thruple with Mary That's that would make sense. Yeah, that would. I mean, that's a great take. Yeah, I can get yes, behind that. I, I think so, because what it really comes down to is a lot of their problems are just in that respect, because Christopher can be selfish, right? Christopher wants the relationship to, with Mary to be something that is just his in a way that that they met Mary together, you know, and which is not to say that, you know, he can't have a relationship with Mary. I'm saying that he just he wants Tricky out of it just because he wants Tricky out of it, not for any good reason. I don't think there's any point in which Tricky would ever ice Christopher out of anything. And that's kind of, you know, Tricky pretty much tells him that. Oh, it's kind of a sad (laughs) note to end on, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, the movie ends with him dying, right? Like, that's it. Yeah. All right. So then the message is if you ice your friends out of your throuples. (laughs) Then they're going to get murdered in the boat. You're going to get murdered. By your girlfriend's dad. That's the real world takeaway. Exactly. The white suit that shows no blood whatsoever. Because in conclusion, Prince is an angel. Yeah, that's maybe a better takeaway. I just wish Monica had gotten to talk more a little bit about the costuming of the movie because all of the outfits were amazing. I think I made a point a little early on that the movie seemed more like a look oh, yeah. a plot <laughs> or like a music video maybe more, th- more than it seemed like a movie. Yes, I love that like all of his outfits are like, you know, like they, they try and like crash into this like the white people party wearing like the most conspicuous outfits possible (laughs) where it's like you know blend in look like you were invited to this party and it's prince just wearing all of his prince clothes we we looked up the budget Mm -hmm. of this film which was 12 million dollars which is an exceptional amount of money in the 80s and i was like yeah it's because every pair of shoes that Prince wears is like made of the same fabric as the rest of his outfits. Like there was no expenses yeah. spared on anything worn by Prince. Those are definitely real silk pajamas at every opportunity, yes. oh, which yeah. by the way, also have matching shoes. He wears shoes to bed in his silk pajamas, like a level of luxury that I aspire to be. <laughs> Well, I mean, one one of the flaws of the film, and it's not a flaw, I mean, it's just a, well, actually, actually, I don't want to say it's a flaw of the film. One of the flaws of Christopher and Tricky's logic is, you know, how are we ever going to get back to Miami? How are we ever going to get back to Miami? Sell one shoe. Just like, like, literally, like, like they're poor people who cannot figure out how to get out of France and get back to Miami. And like Prince is wearing Prince his entire budget diamond on like two other yeah. buttons. Yeah. And, and Tricky's like, you know, I guess I'll wear the Versace today. Like, what? what how are you poor? Of course, you've got. They have the film opens with them at their grotto. There's this place they hang out at. They have a cave on an island that is just his, you know, his private you know, spot that he hangs out at. And he he writes poetry there. I think we're supposed to believe that this is his private spot that he never takes anybody to. And Mary is the first girl that he's taken there because it's just where Prince hangs out. And he has somehow gotten a white grand piano on top of this little island that's just there. And it's just like, oh, yeah. Like, how did you do that? And no one is concerned about the idea of like weather. Rain, yes, it's just no, it's just, and I think it's diegetic. I think that's supposed to be there. I think that this is like a you know, he does this cool thing where he's got a piano that he keeps on this island, you know, poor guy. 
it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't need to make sense because it is it's not about logic. It's about the vibe of being in this world. Right. I mean, and if that's the case, like. I fully want to be in this world, right? Mav wants to be in this world. Yeah. You want <laughs> pants that are tailored to your butt and absolutely and belly chains that <laughs> might also be thongs. Like it's just sign me up, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't understand how, and you know, our show is is weird. We haven't like really recapped it. That's not how we do our show. I don't understand how people cannot like this movie. I want people to go see this. It is bizarre and weird, but it is it is so this is a movie made by a legitimate genius, which means it's completely mm-hmm. mental. Like this is this film is prints on screen. Like, and when I say it's prints on screen, what I mean is like this is what the inside of Prince's head feels like. Yes. It's hilarious and it's shit talking and it's he's a delightful, mysterious little weirdo. And it's this is the prince. This is not the prince from Purple Rain that mainstream audiences got to know. I feel like this is the prince you would get to know if you were his actual friend and you actually got to hang out with him. Him, and he would just be really funny in these amazingly expensive outfits on the French Riviera, trying to teach French, like British women, how to speak American Black English. Like, this is the person he would actually be in 1986 if you were his friend. And I adore this movie. I absolutely adore it. How could you not with that description? <laughs> Yeah. So I guess what we're saying is we're recommending everybody go out and watch this immediately. It is available on HBO Max right now. Certainly just go watch it. I, Not even a joke. Not This is not the Riverdale joke. This is not the cop rock joke. I want people to go watch this film and then just like let us know what you think of it because it is so amazingly good. Like I cannot stress enough like how just magical it is. There's a weird not a magical realism because that's Graffiti Bridge. It's just a delightful it's quirky because this is how Prince sees culture. This is like how Prince you said it's the inside of Prince's head. I think this is like if you have magical Prince glasses on, this is just what Prince thinks the world looks like. Yeah, and he's exactly. just parroting it back. And this is so it's so beautiful in many ways. Also, it reminded me, this film reminded me, it is the origin of several things that I say in my actual regular everyday life on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is where those quotes come from (laughs) in ways that I have forgotten (laughs) and found delightful. Like follow someone. Stupid. Yeah, I actually quote this movie. Stupid home and see if someone stupid don't answer the door. Like I say that. Doesn't answer the time. door. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there, I similarly quote this movie ad nauseum without people knowing even me anymore because it has just become so so much a part of my and, and like the Recasto thing just becomes like a part of black culture. Like that joke For sure. is just like a thing that yeah that like originates here and just becomes this thing that everybody knows. You know, so but yes, I concur. I can't wait to assign this in a film class. <laughs> that would be great. I, I support <laughs> like, that. I totally support that. Yeah. I I mean I think that this really is a great movie if you like like forties film and forties noir, and I could see this going really well alongside a film like Woody Allen's Purple Rose of Cairo, right? That's looking at genre conventions and the ways that genre conventions mm-hmm. can be played with or given alternative meanings or, you know, the idea of like authorship inside of genre in a really effective way. Mm-hmm. I was thinking it's alongside like the big sleep, you know, which, which is bogey and Bacall. I mean, this is Prince doing that. And I don't know. I love it. So agreed. So we've resolved nothing is what we're saying. <laughs> um, I don't know. What I we've resolved, you resolved to like, like you definitely got some converts out of it, this, which was your goal, yeah, right? Yeah. And this is a, I mean, this is a different episode than we do on the show. Cause it's not like this was very much, my goal was, I just want to talk about this movie and I want people to go see it. And I want people to give it a shot because it is, it's, 
legit endearing, right? It's not just, it's not weird in the way that Riverdale is weird. And I keep stressing that it is just endearing in a way that I think that if you give it a chance and let it wash over you and you say, no, he's doing a thing. This is Prince's love letter to the 1940s, to the film of the 1940s. And it's just how he sees it. And yes, they break into song because that's just in Prince's world. Sometimes people break into song because he's Prince, right? Like that's just how his life is. And so I think that so much of it is just magical and delightful that I really think people will legit enjoy it. So that's why I wanted to do this episode. And that said, I want to know what people think, because we've been talking about, do we want to do more episodes like this? Not necessarily about Prince movies, but there are lots of movies that one or more of us on the show think are underrated. Um, No, this is really a good movie. I swear, I swear, I swear. Give it a shot. Like Monica mentioned Batman and Robin already as being one of hers, right? Like, And so let us know in the comments, do you want us to do more episodes where we look at where we review movies that we think are good, but that the rest of the world thinks are bad. And we've got a couple of them in mind. Is one of them Valerian and Monica Monica City of a Thousand Planets? Because that's mine. Oh, God. That's mine. That's not one of them. That yeah. movie is um, well, actually the- better than people give it credit for. Uh, spoilers for one of the uh, one of them is actually is absolutely Sucker Punch that Monica yes. and I both adore. <laughs> Sucker Punch is a legit good movie, and if you don't like it, you just didn't get it. Try again. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna respond to that with you, like E W period. <laughs> Yeah, see, yeah, you, you, you missed the point. And that's kind of what we want to do with this series. We want to know what people think. And like, let us know. Do you want us to defend Sucker Punch? Because I'm not joking. I think Sucker Punch is is a legit, really good movie. Possibly Zack Snyder's finest. And just it's just not clear what he's doing. That's so interesting. I would love <laughs> so. to come back and talk to you about it. Because I think it's maybe the most misogynistic movie ever made in the history of film. So, yeah. Ah, like, see? I would love to. And Monica and I have had this discussion off air. Like, I understand why. I absolutely understand why you say so. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, but anyway, that's another episode. Thank you to all of our guests. Well, we'll start, Chris. Is there anywhere people can find you still? I mean, I mean, you're less on the internet than you used to be. But yeah, but I'm still around. You can follow me at Doc Christopher B on Twitter, and the Deconstruction Workers podcast is still up on iTunes, wherever you get your favorite Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And also, please, please see luck. It's streaming now on Apple TV Plus. Am I the very last guest on the Deconstruction Workers podcast? I think I might I think be. you might be. Yeah, <laughs> I killed the show. Wait, no, I'm not the last. I'm not the last guest on the Deconstruction Workers podcast. I just went and checked. So I didn't kill the show by myself. I'm like three from the end. Anna, what about you? Yes, you can find me. I'm mostly on Instagram at Annabella Bomb. Anna B-E-L-A, Bomb, B-A-U-M. And then also, if you want to, you know, check out my movie, we're still on the festival circuit, but it's called Disfluency. And that's also at Disfluency Movie. And yeah, I would love to come back and talk about it with y'all at some point. So keep that in mind. And thank you so much for having Absolutely. me. Of course. Please do. Lindsay, what about you? I'm taking a bit of an extended break from the internet, so you can't really (laughs) find me anywhere. And I have nothing else to plug, but I do want to say thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this. This was great. Really appreciate this. And I'm glad you enjoyed the movie. Yeah, I'm glad we got to watch it. (laughs) Awesome. And Monica Marvelous. Uh, You can find me on Instagram or on Twitter. Um, That's going to be at Monica Marvelous, but on Instagram, that's going to be L-O-U-S. And on Twitter, Twitter, that's going to be L-O-U-X. We can have a lot of spirited debates about movies that you think are great or movies that I think are great. Just going to put in a petition to say Twilight should be one of those. Backup Monica, (laughs) the first Twilight movie is great. The first one, huh? Yeah, that's where I stand. Yeah, I have to go second. Okay, all right. right. For different reasons, anyway, different discussion, different time. And you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all the places. Always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show all those same places at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where we talk about whatever we're going to talk about next week. I'm not sure what that is. You know, you have to. Tune in and find out. And you can leave us comments on this or any other show. You can let us know what you think about what we talked about. You can suggest topics for us to talk about on future shows. You can pitch yourself as a guest. There's all kinds of stuff. We always just want to hear from you. 
If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a review, not just a rating, you write a little something-something. That really helps us out by boosting the algorithm and making us more popular. And it gives me something to read and something to feel good about. I like reading stuff, and I want to know what you're thinking. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank all of our guests for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye! Bye!